Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very happy to be here. Very excited about today's show with my guest, Bob Saget. And before we get started, I just want to thank you guys so much for all of your support. I'll never stop saying it. You guys make this show what it is today. And it's all about you. It's all because of you. And I'm so grateful to all of you. Thank you so much. And as I always do, I look at my guest and I think about what I'm going to say and today's no exception. And when I think about Bob Saget, I think about so many different things. And the biggest thing I think about is the fact that this guy does everything. This guy does stand-up comedy. He does musical comedy with one of his hour specials being nominated for a Grammy. He directs television. He directs film. He's a host who's hosted God knows how many hundreds of episodes of television. He's a sitcom actor who's been in hundreds of episodes of half-hour comedy. He's a dramatic actor. He's a guy who's done off-Broadway and on-Broadway plays that have been nominated and won Tony Awards. He's a guy who's written a book that's been on the New York Times bestseller list. A guy who just recently now produced, directed, and starred in his own feature film that he's been working on for seven years. He's 61 years old, and he's still now working on his next hour special. 
this past week, he did three different things, from a guest shot on a Netflix television special to Fuller House to the premiere of his movie. It's incredible. And not only that, one thing, along with all of these things, that is truly, truly incredible is the fact that he suffered bone-crushing tragedies. He's lost two sisters, tragically. Yet Bob always figures out a way to be generous and kind and giving. Does a benefit every year for scleroderma, which one of his sisters passed away from, and has raised millions and millions of dollars for the charity. I can't even begin to tell you what Bob is like as a person, but the only way to describe him is somebody who wears his heart on his sleeve, always cares about what you think, how you feel, always comes up to you and asks you how you're doing before asking about anything that he's doing. He truly cares and is genuinely excited about the world of comedy and how it translates into so many different areas of the business. And I can only let you know that if you can figure out a way to not only use every skill set you have and put 100% towards each one and follow through on each one to success, but also be able to deal with the tragedies that our world and this life throws upon us and still drive forward your personal life and your professional life in a positive way, I can guarantee you, if you can figure out how to do that, you'll have a chance at the kind of career that Bob Saget has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard. Very excited about today. And I have been waiting for this moment for a long, long time. And now it's come. So without further ado, I'm going to give this guy the proper introduction. So here goes. Bob Saget has starred in many successful television shows, including two of the most family-friendly shows, Network TV, has ever produced. I'm talking about Full House and America's Funniest Home Videos. But he's also been one of the edgiest, most powerfully unique stand-up comedians in the world for over 30 years. From directing MGM's cult favorite feature film with Norm MacDonald, Dirty Work, to directing and producing the highly acclaimed ABC television movie For Hope, to starring in the critically acclaimed Paul White's off-Broadway play Privilege to starring on Broadway in the Tony Award-winning The Drowsy Chaperone, Bob Saget shows no signs of stopping. 
His 2013 one-hour stand-up special, That's What I'm Talking About, was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Album, and his first book was a New York Times bestseller entitled Dirty Daddy, The Chronicles of a Family Man Turned Filthy Comedian, which Vanity Fair called hilarious and at times heartbreaking. Bob's new hour stand-up special, Zero to Sixty, was shot in Brooklyn, at the Williamsburg Hall of Music and premiered worldwide the end of last year and is now available on all digital platforms. He's presently finishing the feature film Benjamin that he produced, directed, and starred in alongside Rob Corddry, Sherry O'Terry, Dave Foley, Marilyn Reichkub, and Kevin Pollack coming out in theaters later this year. Ladies and gentlemen, a man that I've been waiting a long time to sit across from. So excited. One of the most generous and kind and respected people in our industry. Please welcome Bob Saget. Thank you, Barry Katz, the manager, the myth, the legend. <laughs> I'm two out of those three. I don't know which they you're, are. You're, you're, you are legendary. There isn't anybody <laughs> in comedy that doesn't know you because you were one of the people that when the high days of comedy started back up or maybe ever in the early 80s, late 70s, that's uh, you were one of those people. There, there were a dozen people that were managing. It was and you were uh, wow. How old were you when you started managing? I was really, really young. I was in my 20s, and my first client was Louis C.K. Wow. Back in Boston, he was 17 or 18, and I found out that Jerry Seinfeld was coming to town for 10 shows at these 500-seat to 1,000-seat theaters. And I always knew Jerry just like I knew you from the beginning. Yeah. And I reached out to him and his manager because you have to do things sort of like in a way that doesn't offend anybody. Who's And his manager is George Shapiro, who's one of the sweetest people on this earth. The greatest guy. He's I, been a podcast guest here as well. and he's I love him beyond. Incredible. And so I reached out to Jerry and then George and I sent Louis VHS tape to them. And Louis got the gig opening for Jerry for 10 shows in New England. You need to see the hell gigs in the beginning. You need to know that you can work in the gigs that are not meant to have comedy. You have to. But you also need to know what a great crowd looks like and if you can make it with that crowd as well. So you're ready yeah. for both situations. I, I'm fortunate in that pretty much the hell's gone. <laughs> but for those first 10 years... You know, I was, I was 17 years old. I was taking a train from Philadelphia up to New York, and I'd go to Catch a Rising Star, and I'd go to the Improv, and I'd wait in line 12 hours, sign-up sheet with a guitar, just a guitar act. <laughs> just, and it, was, and it, was, it wasn't as funny as you guys just laughed. It was, uh, I used to sing while my guitar gently weeps and turn a, a switch. Do you remember this? I turned a valve, and water poured out of the guitar. I was uh, I was at the Improv once here in L.A. and I had the guitar on and I was you know and I was doing music parodies, a couple of original songs, but mostly it's you know one step above mime, not to hurt any mime people, but <laughs> uh, and Larry David was standing next to me and it was before Larry got Fridays and so he was just a, always a brilliant comedy writer. For the audience, Fridays was a competitor to Saturday Night Live. Michael Richards was in it. John Rourke, who played Phil Donahue, and yeah. Larry David. And, and, and a bunch of funny people, but it 
it paled in comparison, obviously, to SNL, but it was an interesting attempt. And on Fridays, so you got a huge uh, Shabbat audience. <laughs> um, but but Larry he was standing next to me at the improv. I'll never forget it. And it kind of was a, a game changer for me because I respected him so much because he was such a great writer and, and, and such an f- obviously funny man inherently because of his internal pain and, and his brilliant way of looking at things, his observations. Um, and so I'm standing next to him and some comedians on stage, I don't remember who it is, but it was all prop act. It wasn't the amazing Jonathan. I think it was someone that, that's no longer alive, whoever they were, they're not here. And Larry looked at them and he went, this is what people want. They don't want, they don't want comedy. They don't want, they, they just want this, it's garbage. And then he says, they want a guitar act. And <laughs> here I am next to him. And he, and he was friendly, you know, we liked each other, but here I am with a guitar on. Just like, you know, the Nazis just shone a, shined a light on me, like I'm the guilty one. And yeah, they want a guitar act and I'm about to go on. So Larry got on stage and said to the audience, you people, you you don't know what comedy is and I'm, you don't deserve me. And then he, he told, after he, told, he had told a joke that I can't remember, but it was brilliant. And he left the stage and then I went on and, and did my guitar act and did really, really well. But after that, I realized that I was getting easy audience response and um, that I needed to take the guitar off. So for five, six years uh, in town when I would work out at the comedy store and the improv, I was just guitarless and I bombed for a long time to try to learn how to be a good stand-up and, or, or find my style because <laughs> that's a... It's subjective. And now now I'm at a place I just did a special zero to sixty promotion. I'm a promo I'm a whore. I'm a promo. We all are though. I'm a fan site because I'll talk to people once in a while, but it scares me otherwise. I mean and I don't want people knowing my algorithms. You know, that's that's my birth control method. <laughs> that's not even funny. But but what but, it was funny to me. Oh thanks. You're all you've always been kind. You have. You've always been kind to me. What I was going to say was cut to now. I hate people that say cut to. <laughs> You're <laughs> a director. I'm a, yeah, it's true. But but this uh, zero to 60, I ended up doing four new songs at the end of it. What was the second choice for the name? There wasn't one. It was just zero to 60 because they talk about being born and they talk about being 60. So that was the idea. And it had a speed kind of feeling to it. And then I took the fake North by Northwest photo for the cover. And it's an, it's a, it's on vinyl. It just uh, just came out on Amazon Prime on vinyl. And the big joke that I wasn't allowed to do on television the other night was, um, you know, with it's, it's on Amazon Prime, so with two clicks you can get the special and the lotion. <laughs> so you can, you know, or a vibrating egg, which would be a Woody Allen line. Do you feel 60? I'm 61 now because I went and shot the special. I should have waited a year. Zero to 61. <laughs> you I mean, look like you're 40. So you're you- really nice. Thank you. Well, I've got a girl, my fiance. I got a girl, friend? No, fiance. Gonna marry her soon. She's uh, half my age plus seven. That's the legal limit. So she's uh, she's 38. She's gonna be 39, and I'll be 62 around the same time. Why do you think younger women seem to be interested more in older guys? Why is that? Well, I think Trump has set a good example. <laughs> uh, I th- I think. What's always great when you sit across from a really, really extraordinary, experienced 
great lonely person (laughs) is that there's always the moment it's like you know that show with Penn and Teller fool us the magicians come on and they try to fool them and most of them can and in comedy when somebody sits across from me I'm rarely fooled right and you just fooled me are you okay (laughs) oh that's my favorite that's my favorite comedy as it unveils and there and that's not saying that that what I you know just a silly quip like a Groucho Marx that's where that originates is a guy that just answers you really fast and it's timing and it applies to the moment but then there are people that just unweave a whole story you know you listen to Jerry and he'll do I mean he's better now than he's ever been which makes sense because he's you know he's a year older than me and he's you know, one of the best that's ever done stand-up. But I always felt your kind of comedy was one of the most difficult to do, and I'll share with you why. Let me remove the guitar from what I'm talking about. Yep. So your stand-up, the reason why I've always had so much respect for you, and I think the audience might not know this, is that when Bob writes his material and puts it all together and practices it, he's committed to about 33 to 25% of it not even being heard because if he's in an auditorium, the laughs are coming so quickly that his tags sometimes are lost and he has to... I go too quickly sometimes. And and he has not, to... not sexually. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I'm a very, a very long, long-standing... Um, I have tolerance. This is a, the, I call my home the Museum of Tolerance. <laughs> yeah, there's a memorial in it. Sometimes I punch a body bag and I keep going, I'm not doing it to kill. I'm doing, people, I used to, when I was in my 20s, it would be like, you know, Rodney used to say to me, man, you just got to kill him. 50 minutes, just do 50 minutes. Don't stop, just keep going, just keep going. You got to kill, every line's got to be killer. And then as I learned what my style was a lot of it got made up on the spot and then a lot of it was like oh I got a here's a special I'm gonna shoot I've got a thousand things to say I'm gonna put them all together and try to go linear because as you know we try to shoot a couple and and get a couple in the can so then you can edit them together I'm not very easy to edit together from two specials Um, that's why the music comes in but it's really fun to just get onto, it's like surfing, you know? I just performed last week, and um, that's what I call sex. Uh, well, it was a sex show. Okay, I'm a male stripper, and I'm out of work. But but surfing, it, it's you just go, and, it's, and there is a zen thing. It's, it's the, uh, the zen uh, diaries of Gary Shandling. Just there, it was extraordinary. Yeah, Judd did an amazing job, and I, I got interviewed, uh, and... There's some amazing people, and Gary had a lot of good friends in his life. And my my life was very complicated with with him and with everything. And um, he was my first friend in L.A., and I loved him a lot. Well, you were represented by Brad Gray together, right? And I introduced him to Brad Gray. So were you Brad Gray's first client? I am ever? Brad Gray's first client. Um, and uh, so the other person that also signed me was Harvey Weinstein. And... Uh, it's an amazing world we're in now, isn't it? Isn't it something? <laughs> he never touched me, um, but he wanted 10%, so I, I gave him what was inside my penis. But the other thing is, you know, you don't, someone that has such good taste in film, uh, it doesn't mean a damn thing. You could be the greatest artist of all time, and if you've done heinous acts and done terrible things, 
It's just unconscionable. So I was saying to you uh, before we were in here, I've never pushed myself, maybe, maybe like, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, divorced and drunk and stupid, but I, but nothing that anybody would say, Bob did this to me, you know, but I, I just, uh, I'm a shy guy kind of. So I would, people needed to be, uh, hitting on me basically because i i'm not that guy you know i would roofie myself before <laughs> someone else and um so it's a real we we have a lot of crap going on in the world right now that makes me want to do stand-up it's so strange because i didn't think at 61 i'd be going oh no i've got to go okay i did this theater i did all these theaters now i got to come up with the new hour because they did the special and so I got to go do some clubs. So I'm going to go do the clubs that I like. So I'm going to Comedy Works in Denver. I'm going to the places that make me feel good that I can riff. Because you don't want people to buy a hard ticket and then you're out on stage doing 20 minutes of just fucking around. That's not fair to them. Unless it, it can get quiet. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want a couple thousand people there to get quiet. You want to, you know, refine it to some point. So when people are paying money, Everything is is meticulous. You've done every cylinder in the engine of the entertainment business. You've done ten different things from directing to producing to stand up to acting dramatically, acting comedically, hosting, writing a book. Every single cylinder in your engine has I love been it. used. And you've been enormously successful, one of the most financially successful people when you consider the length of time of Full House, Fuller House, America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> so I think what the audience would love to know is you just got engaged. Yeah. You have a beautiful woman. Why not go on vacation with her to some exotic island and enjoy the time you have with her than going well, we out do. to we, the Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut in Peoria, Illinois. Right. I, I look at examples like, you know, you can have an island like Johnny Depp, but, you know, I think he would have rather been in Denver at the Comedy Works than what happened to him. Um, and he's a talented guy, you know, but and he has to work. Um, I mean, he doesn't have to financially. I don't know nothing about him at all, except he's talented and he's been through some stupid you know hard difficult uh press of things that he's done or not done i'm not a judge i don't know but it doesn't doesn't look good but i i need to work because i can't really enjoy a vacation unless i feel like i've put a huge body of work behind me but you did you did the and special I do, but i did i did the special and then um and then i i went with uh, my fiance and two of my daughters to cabo and then um, we went away for a week, and then my fiance and I went. She doesn't have a name; we just call her my fiance. <laughs> She's she. Uh, we went to do the Bill Maher show in Hawaii, the thing that he does. And we played Maui and Oahu, so that that was back to work in a way. But there's something incredibly satisfying about working really hard. I have I just have ingrained in me from my dad this work ethic thing, and then I feel good. Then I feel like I. Uh, to put it uh, offensively, got my nut, you know. I, and then I directed this movie that you helped me with. Thank you very oh, Benjamin. much. Benjamin. Benjamin, which is coming out in the fall. And it's got a wonderful cast. And Sherry O'Terry, who's adorable in it. And 
It's Rob Corddry and Kevin Pollack and Marilyn Rice Cub and Dave Foley. And uh, the premise is my, my son, we believe, is on crystal meth. So it's a serious premise with a dark comedy twist to it. And the intervention is called on Facebook by my girlfriend, Marilyn Rice Cub, in the movie, and playing my girlfriend. And then uh, all of a sudden, craziness ensues because Rob Corddry is the gynecologist that leads the intervention. And that's not who you would have lead an intervention. So it just, the people around you are more screwed up usually than the kid with the problem. So they're the ones with the problem. But but all, all I was gonna say was, when I worked on that, that was a 15 day shoot, which was, as you know, when we talked, insane. It's, a, it's not enough time, you know, 21 is, you could make it in 21 days, but a 15 day to tell a, a real story, and we did it. We did the best we could. And I, I love the movie. And then it comes out in the fall. And it's something I'm crazy proud of because you spend months in prep. I spent seven years trying to get it made. It was uh, written by this guy, Joshua Turk, a young writer and a producer, Nicholas Tabarak. And, you know, Tabarak, that's it. Know your producer's name. Um, and it's a uh, it's something special. If you see a condo you want to get in Palm Springs and it's 500 to a million to million five. You've just lost four tenths of the audience. <laughs> you take out a loan and you buy the place you want to go in or whatever it is. Maybe it's a person's first home and they go and they get it. So why, when you got this material seven years ago, didn't you just say, hey, let me just take out a business loan and let me finance this movie and do it myself and not have to worry about bringing in financers to finance the movie? Did somebody tell you long ago, don't put money into your own project? Yeah, I was told that by everybody, pretty much everybody. And the people I know that have financed their own projects, with the exception of one or two, all lost all the money they invested. And I have friends that are successful and they spent millions of dollars making a movie the way they wanted to make it and it it just didn't happen. So how do you convince investors knowing you know that? Well, when you make a movie for half a million dollars, they're gonna get their money back. You know, when you go this, I mean, I, I'm not a guy that can go on Kickstarter and go, hey, please, everybody, uh, help support my film. When they're going, well, wait a second. It says here on Google that Bob's net worth is, which is not true, whatever the net worth says on Google, that's just insanity. That's like, uh, but um, it just, getting the investors to believe in it. There's also something nice about, um, and it's gonna sound stupid, because this is not how business works, but getting someone's money back for them and then making them money. I find satisfaction in that. I, I, that that's me like, I used to be a deli clerk. <laughs> I went to, I went to a college at Temple University. I lived at home. I had nothing. Um, I made films, student films. I won the student Oscar for a movie I made about my nephew that had his face reconstructed, um, which is very similar to this movie that's out right now, uh, Wonder. Um, it's the same syndrome my nephew had, Treacher Collins syndrome. And he had a surgery where they rebuilt his face. And so I made this film while I was a deli clerk and while I was doing stand-up, and I, I didn't I didn't have a dollar. I mean, I, I took all the money into uh, taking out a girlfriend and buying film stock. Remember back then, you used to buy the, the short ends. ends uh, yeah, and it was 16 millimeters. Yeah, so you could go to movie houses and buy the short ends, which was the unused footage. Yeah. And that's how you'd make the movies. Yeah, that's movie. accurate. You could you could go buy, or someone would, <laughs> the film that would go in the magazine, You the, those were short ends also where you'd buy, that would be the raw stock. But um, none of that exists anymore. It's all digital. And if it had been, 
I would have probably made better product because you could shoot more. You won the student Oscar. How could you do better? And have a film career. <laughs> Get to direct whatever I wanted. And I thought, and I got into USC and I was going to go there. And I went for three days. And um, then the dean gave some speech like, well, if you're lucky, you can win a student academy award. And I was sitting there going, I just won one. You know, bitch, I'm out of here. And I ended up working at the comedy store. Mitzi said, you should work here. So I worked at the comedy store. Uh, you know, at that time, it was pre-strike. So so how I, long did it take you to pass? I passed uh, the moment I came to L.A. when I won the student Oscar. I brought my guitar. I went on stage at the comedy store, and she asked me to be a regular. And she never really liked guitar acts that much. No. She but liked there was Dennis Blair. Likeable. Remember Dennis Blair when he came? Yeah. And, and Kelly Rogers, she kind of uh, liked. Um, and she really liked um, Denny Johnson. Yeah. And Denny was a guitar act, but he, Denny had a couple great songs. He had a, that song, You're an Asshole, which was like the best song. It was really pretty. I think I'll sing it. But, <laughs> but she, um, she just took a liking to my likability. But it didn't mean she, she was going to be easy to deal with. You know, one time I was in Vegas... She had the comedy store at the Dunes Hotel. And this is like seven, eight years of me going to acting classes, me trying to, you know, doing a improv, paying to be in the Groundlings acting class. And you're living in a studio on Palm. I was living in Palm. Did you have a roommate or? I did not. And then I moved. Well, Dave Coulier came out to L.A. and needed a place to stay and he crashed on my couch. Was he from Philly too? He was from Detroit. How did you know him? Uh, Mike Binder, a mutual friend from Detroit, who I knew from L.A., said, my friend Dave's coming out. Uh, and I met Dave in Detroit at a club called the Delta Lady on Woodward. And I liked him, and he seemed like a good guy. So way before Full House, we were buddies. And then I, would, I moved to Hollywood. I lived on Camino Palmero, the famous, beautiful street, Ozzie and Harriet's house at the end. When you were in Philly, were you starting with The Amazing Wid, that great prop act? I knew The Amazing Wid. And Wayne Cotter? I liked Wayne Cotter. Great monologist. Yeah. Tom Wilson used to open for me, and he played the tuba. And, of course, he was Biff in the Back to the Future movies. And who else? Craig Shoemaker opened for me. Of course, the love master. A love master. And then he retired, and then now he's back. <laughs> How did he retire? I don't know. I mean, I don't see myself at 90. You know, doing stand-up. I in see you five... at 90 doing stand-up. You know why? Because you have a Rickle-esque quality about you where it's almost like there's a channeling of Rickles in you and the work there ethic. There is from and the... knowing him and, and from just loving him. And he influenced me a lot. And there there is a work ethic about it. But I want to direct more movies because I love that too. But that's up to the people. No, it's not <laughs> up to the people. It's, no, it's up, up to, to you me. now. Yeah, it is. You're and right. And you did that with Benjamin. What's shocking, when I read the script, and I never told you this because I didn't want to say anything to you until after because it's not my place. <laughs> and I read this movie, and I just want to go on record because I hate everything. I like the movie. I like the script a lot. And, you know, I wasn't like, this is the most uh, extraordinary thing I love, but I love dark comedies. Right. Very bad things. One of my favorite movies of all yeah, time. Yeah, that's that, that's real dark. We don't we don't hack nobody up. In yeah. This thing. But when I thought about it after I read it, I said, "My God!" Because you had said you'd worked five or seven years on it when we talked on the phone, and I thought to myself, "Bob knows the business. He knows huggable and lovable wins the race. Yet every one of these characters in this film 
are like Arrested Development. They're these incredible, powerful characters who are not necessarily huggable and lovable. No, there's a narcissism. And number two is the fact that you know from your success that dark comedies are the toughest movies to be hugely successful. No, you're you're spot on. And and, and the movie is well written in that it has a few uh, it, plot points that are wonderful. There's some great story elements, but it takes place within 24 hours during an intervention. So it's built in some dilemmas and the characters are built in dilemmas. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You could choose to do anything you wanted. Now, I, I will recommend anybody to see this film. But the point I'm trying to make is that you have a choice to do any movie you want to do as a director and producer. Well, I don't have that choice. I can't. No one's going to give me a $60 million movie. $500,000 movies. You have a choice. Yeah, I can of get a, a $500,000 movie. And man. so you decide to do this lane of a movie. And I'm not saying that it's not great because it is great. Well, I'm I have the answer. I'll tell you why. I have three kids. I... I was um, misunderstood as a kid. I was a 15-year-old boy that couldn't have been more miserable. Everybody around me was, in my life, dying. I lost two sisters by the time, while I was in my 20s, I had lost both my sisters. One to scleroderma, hardening of the skin disease, and the other to a brain aneurysm. It should be known that Bob does this incredible benefit every year for his sister who died of scleroderma. Comedians will do anything to work on that benefit. It's so nice, and and I will uh, just say it. I mean, over the past 25 years, I guess 28 years ago, Robin Williams was, was the first person that did it because the woman that founded it, Sharon Monsky, had the disease, and she was five foot four, and you could see that the disease is readable in a lot of people's faces because their skin starts to tense up, and there's too much collagen. It makes your skin taut. It's very hard to explain, but it's an autoimmune disease and vascular, and comedians have, we, Sharon Monsky, this great lady, came up with cool comedy hot cuisine, and we've done We've raised $46 million in 25 years. Incredible. And that money has gone to research that has truly helped people. I know people that are in what you would call remission. They are, no, this, it stopped being aggressive. And 28 years ago, there was no remission. My, my sister died in 94. I think she would have had a real shot 
to be alive if we'd have known. And I'd have taken her to Johns Hopkins, one of the centers we fund that has thousands of patients with the disease. When I interviewed Rita Rudner, she told me about her daughter wanting to be a singer. And she just went ahead and said, I can give you anything. The lessons, the studio, the musicians, I'll press the CDs, I'll get you the instruments. I can give you everything except one thing. And her daughter's like, what can't you give me? And she said, adversity. And you started your life with so much adversity. Right. Do you feel that's what drove it's, you to be funny from when you were a teenager to the point where both your sisters passed away? That, I think, was a 10-year stretch. Yeah, even more. I mean, yeah, I started doing comedy. They were both alive. And then uh, once I was in my 20s, um, I lost my 34-year-old sister. She was six years older than me. And then I'd already been out here in L.A. and, and doing pretty well. I think Full House was on the air when my other sister, Gay, passed away. But the more, and my father lost a bunch of brothers in their 40s of heart attacks. And so we were no stranger to difficult things. So gallows humor, it's a disconnect. It's, I can't deal with this right now. Let me tell you about my balls. You know, it's, and, and, <laughs> and it's just in the middle of uh, burying somebody and crying and losing it. And it's a very bipolar way of, of existing. And my dad would, just try to balance it. And he was a pretty brave man. He got to live to 89, and he had a couple heart attacks when he was younger. So being a kid, being a, I kind of locked in at that. I locked in at nine, really. My stand-up is an extension of a nine-year-old that knows a bunch of words and has some life experience. Now I'm about 16, I think, in, in my stand-up. But I, I, at 15, I had been so unhappy I moved in the middle of ninth grade from Philly to Encino because I wanted to learn about materialism so we moved here but <laughs> well, my, you want to learn about Polly Shore I wanted to know all about the entire Shore family um, and then I moved again between uh, 11th and 12th grade so I had no friends I had a couple friends so to survive I was trying to be funny and so it was really kind of probably cookie cutter version of a guy or girl that is an outsider. I was clearly an outsider. And the way to get people to like me would be to make student films, put people in them from the class. You know, I was very manipulative. You know, it would, it would be like a producer uh, in these past few years, all the producers that have slept with all these actresses and everything. My version was, will you be my friend? Be in my movie. You know, there's no, no sex involved. I'm, I'm 15. And that's when you became an insider? Uh, yeah, I really went introverted at 15. And so there takes us back to the question that started this whole thing. That's why I couldn't let go of this movie, Benjamin, because it's this kid uh, played by Max Burkholder from the show Parenthood. He played the, um, the kid uh, with uh, autism. And he's just a, he's at Harvard now. He's, I, I just love him. I, and I had him and his mom over to my house, and I had my way with her. Um, I probably should not stay in. Uh, that, no, that, no, that can't. That's what I said to her. I probably should not stay in. Your son's here. But um, there you there saw the movie. I showed them the movie in my home, and they just loved it. I couldn't let go of this project because I related to the boy. 
I related to the lunacy around him, the family around him, the relatives that come from God knows where. Every time I'm of Jewish descent, I don't know if you can tell. Thanks for the free sandwich, by the way. No problem. And the, and the parking Thanks validation. for telling me that you forgot your wallet, by the way. I never do that. <laughs> Dave Coulier always did that. Dave Coulier is not Jewish. He's Catholic, but I, I don't know where he You made him this. convert, though, didn't you? I think he just hung out with too many Jewish people because he shows up every time we go to dinner or lunch. I forgot my wallet. It's like, what? And it's got like a, I left my wallet in the car. Dave, you're driving a Jeep with no roof and there's no lock on the glove box. Um Anyway, but that was an outsider's point of view. Benjamin is watching all these relatives and all these people. And a lot of times it would be a shiva uh, or, or if you go to a wake or if you go to something where someone passes away, all these relatives come in. And that's what a dark comedy also, I've seen a couple, we've seen some good dark comedies about that. Um, it's like, who are these people? How are they making us feel good? You know, or a movie like Home for the Holidays, which is a really good movie about when you mash the family together that isn't necessarily even family. Here's your cousin from Remember Them. I mean, there's a thing in this in this film with Dave Foley and Sherry O'Terry. When I say to Benjamin, remember your uh, your Aunt uh, Clarice and Uncle Mitch? I think you met them when you were a baby. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's like no one's thinking. You know, that's the problem is... A lot of parents are raising kids, and they're just trying to get by, and it's hard to raise kids. But they're not connecting with what they're saying to the kid. And then they turn on the news, and at 9 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night, your kid's in there, you're watching CNN or Fox or whatever you watch, and your audience doesn't watch Fox. But maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'd flip around. I want to see what the whole world's thinking. Are you a better father or a better comedian? I think I'm a better father. Better actor or better comedian? Um, it depends on what it is. If I'm really committed to something, I give a thousand percent to whatever I'm doing. So sometimes I, I did a show the other night, stand up wise. I went, boy, that was, and you can never pat yourself on the back because it's over the next day, you know? But it was, boy, that was fun. That was just in the zone. And then I did a, a guest thing on a new Netflix show called The Good Cop. And I played a, a talk show host accused of killing his assistant and it stars Josh Groban and Tony Danza and it's it's a really good show um it's um written by Andy Breckman uh, who who did Monk and uh, it's just a fantastic show and they're only doing 10 so I, I was in one of them and it's not SVU it's not that it's it's more like Monk so it's a comedy crime solving thing but I got my hands around the part and I loved that more than I couldn't wait to get to work the next day. So it was like, oh, you want to do a stand-up show tonight? He's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, my mojo is c covered here. Or then I've done Broadway. The last play I did was called Hand to God. And that was this amazing play. And I was had the good fortune of working with the original cast. And I, I, I took over for Mark Kudish, who's a really good actor. And I got to play that part of, of a Lutheran pastor who's trying to save this kid who has basically Satan as a puppet on his hand. So this actor, Stephen Boyer, who's ridiculously amazing, uh, has he's playing two parts. He's got a, a puppet that talks like Satan on his hand, and it's a comedy. It's a dark, dark, dark comedy. And so that was, uh, I would say that was better than anything else. What you do when you do Broadway. It's a comedian and actor and host and everything you've done 
you're stepping into a situation where people train from birth to be Broadway actors. Oh, yes. This is the A-team. How psychologically do you handle it knowing that you're playing tennis with guys who are playing better than you? Yeah. I did a play, a big play, The Drowsy Chaperone, which was a... The second biggest theater on Broadway, 1,800 seats, nine shows a week. And Bob Martin wrote it and started it, and uh, it won like a bunch of Tony Awards. But what, what happened with Drowsy Chaperone was it had the best people that exist. The Beth Level was the, this amazing woman. And the play was about a guy that I got to play called Man in Chair. That was the character, like stage manager in our town. And he talks to the audience and then he has some mental issues and he makes up this, they made up this musical called The Drowsy Chaperone. He puts the LP on the player and the play comes out of the walls. It comes out of the, the, the hero in the play comes out of the closet. The bed, Murphy bed comes down, there's actors on it. So 20 people are on stage, but they're all in his mind. And it's 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 just beautiful. It's an ethereal play. It, the music is great. It's hilarious, smart as shit. And so I'm on stage with everybody who's a rock star, who is solid. Um, a guy named Danny Burston, a dear, dear friend of mine, Tony Award winner, starred in South Pacific. He was just Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof for a year. And, and I saw it and he crushed it, uh, is playing this character in this drowsy chaperone. And it was Adolfo, and it was this incredibly profiling, uh, tongue-in-cheek thing of he was a Latino lover from from like the '40s, in a in a bigger than Ricky Ricardo kind of way, just over the top. And I was nervous as hell to be on stage right next to him because he was it was Michael Jordan. It was the guy that is just he's so beyond good. There's not a, a moment missed. Yes, he's been doing it for a year. And yes, I'm coming in for the last couple months of it. But it was, and then I started to get into it. And then now we're friends for life. I mean, he's just this, and he's a beautiful soul. That's the other thing. The people that do Broadway, that love it, that eat it up. It's a pretty special community. It's a really, it's a gift. And, and I have a friend, Kevin McCollum. He's produced both Hand to God and Drowsy Chaperone. And Drowsy Chaperone was also produced by Bob Boyette, who is responsible for hiring me for Full House. Of course, Miller Boyette was a huge company back then. And now uh, Tom Miller is still involved, uh, Bob Boyette. And I'm from here, from this meeting of you and this podcast and video audio extravaganza, <laughs> I'm going from here to, um, I don't think I would say extravaganza had Letterman not been an influence. I, I don't, I think he literally coined some of those P.T. Barnum things and put them into his vernacular. He's a special, special smart man he is. Um, Incredible. But I'll be over there talking about Fuller House and what will happen as Fuller House comes out the end of this year, which is, it's so cool for me to not be fighting the devils of, is this good Bob or bad Bob? When you talk in third person, by the way, it's time to get out of show business. <laughs> but would Bob do this? I don't know. Why don't you ask Bob? Why didn't your therapist ask Bob? But um, I love being on that show because you get to entertain families. And my stand-up is just the opposite. You know, my special, if you go watch it, it's not, I don't want a, a nine-year-old watching it. You know, it's not going to say anything terrible. I mean, I, I say wiener, you know. I mean, if I'm saying wiener, 
obviously I'm I'm kidding it down a bit. You say more than Wiener Bob. I do, I do. I keep thinking. It's funny. Right before I did Zero to Sixty, I walked out. I said to the producer. I'm, this is going to be my cleanest special ever because the material was really stories about losing my mom and about my childhood and about just things in the world right now and some indecent things that have happened with famous people that have fallen. Not a lot of it, but the normal amount that comedians can't help but hit upon. And I said, this will be my cleanest special. And I got off stage and he just said, that was your cleanest special. <laughs> it was not. But um, I think it's cleaner than my last one. That last one was Grammy nominated, yeah. and and uh, Kathy Griffin won that year. Yes, but I like him, and he's a no. I'm, that's a joke. I love Kathy, but she's a she. She went through it this year. She went through a lot. It. She's kind of like uh, Joan Rivers. I mean, she's yeah. and she's been through similar things in a way, which is a. It's not that easy to come up in stand up comedy as a woman. And there's there's a whole other dynamic that goes on, and I know because I'm part woman. But um, you know, comedians do things. I've posted things sometimes, but nothing violent and nothing against uh, authority. I I don't want people. I want to entertain people. My job, as far as I'm concerned, is I'm not smart enough to be um, eloquent enough to be able to fix things by saying. Uh, and I know we know people like this. We know, you know, if you watch uh, are my friends and many are your friends. I mean, I watch John Oliver. I watch Bill Maher. I watch Stephen Colbert. I watch Seth Meyers. I watch Jimmy Kimmel, who's a, a love. And John Oliver's a love. And 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 I love Bill Maher. And, and these are people that get out and they they have, yes, they have writers, but they also know what the hell's going on. And they have an opinion of what could fix things. And... I have an opinion of how people should treat other people and how humanity should function. And just, you know, Elvis Costello, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? You know, that's my, mine is more philosophical, but it's more global. And it, because I never knew until this presidency all these positions that existed in the White House. <laughs> I didn't know that they even existed until everybody started getting fired from them or quitting. I was like, he's a what? He's the associate secretary of the what? Of the He's on the list that checks out the FBI after the CIA fires the FBI. But who's in charge of the treasurer? <laughs> what if the secretary of state is fired or anything? You know, I don't get it. This man ran companies, and presumably in each company, 13 or 14 or 16 people didn't get fired in the one year that he hired. So why do you think he held it together, at least in the hiring process and the people he hired in his company, but in the White House, he can't hold it together with the people he hires? I think he's trying to... Uh, I, can't think, I can't think for him because I don't understand that mind. Um, I don't think it's understandable. But I, I guess you try to just serve all of the people that can do good for you, that give you what you want. And it has to, at some point, be your belief system. So it can't just be business only. It has to, you have to convince yourself. Maybe your motives are business, um, meaning this will be a good deal for the U.S., which we hear a lot of. Uh, but it has to come down to um 
you know what? It just all makes me sick. So when you saw Kathy with the bloody head the first time you saw that, what was your first thought? I thought it was over the top. I thought it was uh, was over the top of his shoulders. I thought it, <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was too far. I, you know, but it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it matters if it hurts people. Um, you know, there's a lot of people. We and this is not justification. You become a comedian because you've been cast out of things, or you've chosen to be cast out. You've gone. I can't be part of this group. This is a Groucho thing. I don't want to be part of this club. You know, um, Mark Maron is brilliant, you know, um, and he'll he'll go off and talk about things and go, wow, that's that's a great stand up. He's saying exactly what I'm thinking. And then he'll and then he has his belief system. And and she we're all rebels in a way. When you tell me not to do something, that's not always the solution. If you do a transcript, a court stenographer's transcript of my last set, you can go on these three th- items. Uh, he should not be allowed to perform anymore. But but those are taken out of context because there's also a new thing that happens with all of us. And Dave Chappelle did it so eloquently in his last Netflix special, which is the the first one, especially, uh, is you say something that's going to offend people, but you weave yourself in and out of it so well that you're able to finesse it. And that's half of the challenge. And that's what our great nighttime hosts are doing for us right now, because I'd rather get my news from them than watch the news and start yelling. The last thing you want to do is be yelling at the screen. You know, that's like, that's when you've gone nuts. That's like, Get off my lawn, you know. <laughs> so I, I think there's, um, if you're not coming from a place of malice, and I think uh, holding a human head of anybody, of anybody, you're inciting someone to respond violently back. And that's not my way of doing things. I don't want to push somebody so they push me back. Um, but, you know, look. It was a selfie, too. You want to shoot it professionally if you're going to do it. <laughs> I want to see sinews. No, it was upsetting. It was upsetting, but it's not, it's still, it, it, what is it? it the, we got bigger problems. The bigger problems are how are we going to make the world a better place? We seem to be going uh, backwards. Some people think we're going forwards. I, I don't, I think we should go backwards and forwards behind another person. Well, that's, I think, the most amazing thing being in the entertainment business as you are. The explainability of the fact that 95% of all media before the election was anti-Trump. Every talk show host, anti-Trump. Every sketch you saw on television, No, it's a, it's a miracle. Everything happened. was anti-Trump. I don't know of anybody that went through so much negativity and, and bad press. Well, and, at least that's gone away. <laughs> Can you imagine just the next year, every talk show host making jokes about you, saying bad things? I would have a, a breakdown. But this guy got I'd 64 million people to vote for him, and every time you turned on the television, it was like, this guy's a bad guy. Let's make fun of this guy. And 64 million people still... But we know that is still- very, that because there's a lot of people in this country that have been waiting for a guy like this. There are people that are... And uh, Bill Maher said it last Friday night. Uh, you know, there's the country mouse and the city mouse. And the country mouse 
wants the this guy to say the things that they've been wanting to say. They want to be able to have a gun so somebody comes into their land, uh, they can kill them, you know, but, but a lot of people don't take into account, you know, the 24-year-old mom that's scared living in Chicago who hears a sound and goes and shoots and it's her kid. And you hear about that all the time also. But, you know, it's it's things are going to change. This stuff... We've always gone through horrible history. Um, it just, and it was, I, you hear it all the time. But we, were, we weren't at this level. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have cable to this degree. You wanted your news. You went to Walter Cronkite. You know, you want your news now. You pick what your opinions are and then find that news. And I heard that last night. It's like every opinion I have, I just heard from every comedian and newscaster the past two days. So I think more than ever, I need to entertain people or anybody that has that ability uh, should do it because or inform them there. I mean, that that's another thing I love about comedians. I mean, they, they're teaching people things that they might not know or, or and then I was listening to Lenny Bruce the other day and when I was promoting zero to 60, I put together a Spotify list. So I got to pick all, my, all of my favorite comedians and Lenny Bruce, when you think about what was done to him and how obsessive he and, and crazy he became by the end. People out there listening should watch the movie Lenny with Dustin Hoffman, directed by Bob Fosse. It's a really, it really holds up. And it, it, the man had an opinion, and it really became, became about him because he wasn't allowed to just do his comedy, and he wasn't allowed to talk bad about the government. And um, he got arrested. I mean, so... Multiple times. Right. So look where we are. And he was also... On heroin and you know he got to that point where he was he had some real problems uh but he also paved the way for so many comedians i wouldn't be sitting here i wouldn't be able to go out and do my little dick jokes and and everything i mean you know and then george carlin and and richard pryor all the people that pioneered the way to allow people to just get out and do whatever style they do. You can you can be Brian Regan, you can be Jim Gaffigan, Sebastian, you can be an act that you can take your grandmother and your son to. And then you can be a comedian that, you know, Chris Rock, Chappelle, you know, the, the, some of the best comedians in the world use language and subject matter that would be, you know, R-rated. But I just love, I love all comedians. I do feel like I'm part of a group, not that I want to see them all the time, <laughs> you know, because we, we kind of hang together once in a while, but then we don't. But there is a there is a closeness, and and you know, it's a very weird family. You've you've been through so many experiences with so many of them, yes. And some are wonderful, and some are not wonderful experiences, and you try to figure that out. But they're a very unusual group. It's a very unusual art form, and. Uh, it seems more needed than ever. I mean, tell me the first time somebody said something to you that you respected about your stand up and it hurts you. And conversely, tell our audience the first time a genius came up to you unexpectedly and said, Holy shit, Bob, that's something really special. Wow, that's really nice. Um, well, the one that really hurt me. Well, Rodney was a, f a good friend. So I met Rodney when I was 24, 23. 
And he came into the comedy store in La Jolla, and I've been working there. And he said to me, uh, you're funny, man. I dig you. You got a, you got a smart head. You, you're fucked. And he said, you got a Jewish head that never stops thinking you're never going to be happy. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, oh no. This is this doesn't sound positive. <laughs> but he was telling me that I was funny. He was looking at himself when he was my age and that the mind doesn't stop and that's an accuracy. The mind doesn't stop. You know, you that's that old joke with a comedian. You you, you know, the refrigerator light goes on and they do ten minutes. And that's <laughs> and that's that's just the truth. I mean, you could wake me up out of bed at four in the morning and drop me boots on the ground and I could do a show. You know, um, so that kind of kind of hurt me because it felt like a life curse, but it also felt like a compliment. Um, I think one of the times I was really hurt was by Mitzi at the comedy store. Mitzi Shore. Mm -hmm. And she was a person that helped me tremendously. So she put me on at the comedy store in the beginning. And um, then there was a strike because my friend Steve Lebetkin jumped off the Hyatt and hit the ramp of the comedy store. And I was there that night. Um, and I didn't, I didn't cross the picket line. And I think she was mad at me I didn't cross the picket line uh, because I don't cross picket lines. I was, I'm a union kid. And I don't... I don't what, what are you going to do? There's a bunch of comedians outside with signs. You're going to cross that? Um, and I had loyalty to her because she was so good to me. She put me on a college tour. I was making like, I don't know, a grand a weekend, you know, going out with two comedians, Jeff DeHart and Fred Raker and playing colleges. And uh, so, you know, I had living in a single apartment in my early 20s. And then I was working at the Dunes in Vegas and uh, she would do five comedians. So Sam Kennison would close it. And, and I introduced Sam to Mitzi. I had him, I was there for his first spot and Roseanne would close it or whoever was of, of, of consequence would be the, the big closing act. And then in between would be, you know, Steve Odekirk and myself and whoever her favorites were at the time, Mike Binder, Argus Hamilton would also often host it. And then one night I was there and I went on third sweet spot at the Dunes in Vegas and I had a bad set. Nothing you can say about it. I, bad set, nervous, flop sweat. And then Mitzi backstage said, you've lost it. You're not funny anymore. And told me that I was just done. Told me I wasn't funny anymore. Uh, and so that was pretty pretty hard I, I must have been like 25 26 and then i got a richard Pryor movie called critical condition and uh, all of a sudden i was funny again because i was hanging out with richard so then i started getting spots more but i always worked everywhere i mean it didn't matter because i had an act that could be if i had to put the guitar on it would be like a strap on you know i'd be ready to pleasure anyone one of the biggest compliments i ever got I was about to open on Broadway in The Drowsy Chaperone, and Mike Nichols, the great director who I looked up to a lot, he, he directed people, you have to tell people by guess, but he directed The Graduate, and, and then he had a 50-year span of movies and directed Closer. You know, I mean, this is a man who's 80 years old directing Closer, this, you know, intense 
rough relationship movie and the birdcage i mean just crazy talent and also directed who's afraid of virginia wolf with richard burton and elizabeth taylor when he was like 26 so the the compliment that i got from someone that i thought was a genius which was mike nichols is I was sitting, just sitting, waiting for a, a show to open on a Monday night. I don't remember what show it was, but Monday nights was the night that we were off. But they would have a special preview for the theater community uh, to come out to an opening. And Mike Nichols just walks up to me and grabs me by the shoulders and says, you know what a great actor you are, don't you? I said, what? what? It's so nice to meet you. I'm, I'm, and I'd met him before, but I forgot because I'd known Diane Sawyer because I was on a CBS morning news thing. And he said, "I said I, I don't. I I love acting." He said, "You're a great actor. I've seen you act. You're a great actor. You need to know it. You need to start knowing that." I went, yeah, "Yes, yes, uh, Mr. Nichols." Um, and then I have the great fortune of being friends with Norman Lear. Now, Norman Lear is, you know, the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, for me in my life and a lot of people's lives. Another great interview here as well. I had a great time with him. There's nothing. There is no one. Is, I mean, he's one of the greatest people I'll ever know in my entire life. And uh, I get to have the privilege of going up and we sing songs every few months. There's Cigar Night at his house and we all, it gets musicians and we all play music and just make him laugh and we all sing and dine. And... Um, he is a person that called me up when I'd written this book, Dirty Daddy. And he called me and he said, I, I, uh, I read your book and I wanted you to know, and this was kind of out of nowhere. I mean, I'd talked to him once before. This was a few years ago. Um, and he, he said, I want you to know that I read your book and it's very good and very funny, but I think uh, your next book shouldn't be funny at all. You should do something completely serious because you're you're a very deep person and you have a lot to say so you should write a book with no humor and i said so i'm not funny <laughs> you know it went right to the negative but it, it, it those kind of things uh mold a man or or a woman or can mold a man to become a woman <laughs> but but he he uh he made me want to do more uh serious work Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site and if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out 
with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. So take me back to where you grew up, the family dynamic, and who was funny, who wasn't funny. And what was your first influence of getting into this business? Um, I was in... I was born in Philadelphia, but then about five years old, four or five, I don't know. My parents don't ever, they never told me the, uh, they haven't told me recently anything because they've been gone for a few years. But um, my dad was with Food Fair Pantry Pride Supermarkets. So he was a, a meat executive. So he had to move from town to town like a Navy brat. I was in Norfolk, Virginia. So I grew up there. And it was kind of messed up. There was, it, I had some friends. I was a, a Jewish kid. I had uh, the the religion uh, chose me. I didn't, uh, you know, at five I didn't decide which religion I was going to go with. Um, and there weren't a lot of Jewish people um, around me at school, and so I I faced a lot of anti-Semitism, which was really strange. Kids would throw rocks at my head and call me a Jew and stuff, and. I collected the rocks and I sold them at the market, <laughs> but I, but it was, it was, was there's a lot of persecution, you know, but then you go to Temple University and that's not exactly the haven for Jews. Well, it actually was, I mean, it was, it was, it was a huge, uh, black population and a huge, um, working class, white Philly, you know, Hey, you want a cheesesteak? And I, I, I do a lot for Temple when I can. I, I, I love the school. It was wonderful for me. And I think it's, and they've really done some remarkable things with the school that have really upgraded the education there as well. So, um, but back to Virginia, I think my dad, again, his brothers were also incredibly funny. So here I am, I'm like, I don't know how old I was, seven, and I'm up. I'm living in Norfolk, Virginia. We go to Philadelphia to visit one of my uncles, and his name was Uncle Manny, and he died of a double heart attack because his wife ate his heart out, basically, <laughs> and he smoked like six packs of cigarettes a day. So he got me to lie down on the floor, and he, but it's, this is going to sound terrible, what I'm going to say. I haven't told this to anybody ever. And he would he'd say, okay, lay there, don't move, like, like in the Army, you know? Lay there. Now take your pants off. But it wasn't sexual. It was like, I'm going to put you, I'm going to embarrass you in front of everybody. But that sounds like abusive, doesn't it? Yeah. But, and I wouldn't Especially do Especially if you don't wear underwear. No, I never wear underwear because just in case my uncle wanted to tap that. <laughs> but, because uh, I was always inviting it. I was a kid that wanted to be the pedophile. I mean, I wanted to be the victim. <laughs> See, that's not funny. That's terrible. Because, but we know the reason I'm saying that is because it's the worst thing that exists that people could possibly do. He would say, take your pants off. And I'd go, no, but I was like, okay, just lay there then. So I would lay there and for a half hour, I would just lay on the floor and not move. And I thought it was hilarious. I just found it really funny because he was just giving me shit. And his own son didn't find it funny, and his family didn't find it funny. And my dad didn't say, hey, Manny, leave him alone. They were four brothers, so they acted like bullies. You know, they acted like just military kind of guys. Um, and so I kind of looked up to him, and he never touched me, so that's good. 
the other influence was my uncle Sammy. He was a singer. He wanted to be a singer, and he died at 37. And he sang. He went out a little bit with Kay Kaiser, and um, it was a band leader. Mike Douglas also went out with Kay Kaiser, not and toured. We're not not went out. When I say went out, it's not like Tinder. But uh, but my uncle Sammy died playing tennis at 37, and I idolized him. He he just wanted to sing and entertain people. He was kind of like a uh, Jack Jones. There was a singer, Jack Jones, which was like kind of like a, a poor man's Tom Jones because <laughs> Jack Jones, I'll be, I'll be Jack Jones, but you know, there's only one Tom Jones, you know? So it's, it's, um, yeah, there was, there was no happy childhood. I mean, my friends would go to camp and I would mow lawns, you know? Um, I didn't even know whose lawns. I would just mow strangers lawns. I didn't even get paid. I would just go around mowing lawns. <laughs> uh, they called me the mower. <laughs> so what was your first break in show business? Well, that happened in Philadelphia. There was a club called Grandma Minnie's. And the club owner would, and uh, Murray Langston, the unknown comic, mm -hmm. was a guy, was the first headliner that I'd seen. Did I you was, see him as Murray Langston? He was the come. unknown comic, and then he would go uh, with the bag. And then at the end, and now my impression of an asshole. And he took the bag off, and he would make a face. And I recognized him from the Sonny and Cher show because he was one of the company players. He was really good on that show. And we were kind of friendly after that, years later in L.A., but I was 17 when I saw this. And the owner of the club, you'll love this, He would, the cover charge... I was listening to him charging people when they came in. He would charge them more according to, more or less, depending on how they were dressed. So if they had money, he would be like 30 bucks. If they had no money, it would be like 10 bucks. If they looked like poor kids, he would just make up the cover, which was kind of nice, but kind of assholey. But um, so WMMR was a big radio station in Philly, and they had a radio contest, and I heard it on the radio. And I had just seen this Murray Langston, uh, the unknown comic, and I entered the radio contest. And I did one of the comedy songs that I'd been doing, and it was a song called Bondage. I was a 17-year-old kid singing a song about bondage. Good, clean, fun, it's bondage for everyone. Masochists and sadists unite one and all. Bondage is the rage. Come on, let's have a ball. That was the lyrics. And they were that funny, as quiet as it is right now. <laughs> and I won the radio contest. I, I freaking won it. So I got $500, and I was on the radio on MMR. They recorded it and played it back. And then that was one of the songs that I would go up to New York and do at Catch a Rising Star. And Belzer was one of my first MCs. Richard Belzer. Mm -hmm. And he would go like, there you go, 17-year-old kid singing about bondage. <laughs> That's just what we need. Someone like, you know, whatever. Um, I love Richard. I mean, you know, there's comedians that... It's really weird that time has passed and everybody's gotten older because I was this young kid looking up to all these guys and here I am now watching myself in every other documentary about comedians that are passed away or talking about them in an homage fashion, but usually it's they're deceased and I'm kind of a go-to interview, but I don't want to do them. I don't want to be in them, but 
oh my God, he was a friend of mine. I have to be in it. I have no choice. I have to give my side of the story or I have to say how brilliant he was or, or whatever. So it's, uh, I think I'm in 10 documentaries right now about comedians. I hope there's never one about me. Your first stand-up break on television. First stand-up break, simple. Make me laugh. Make me laugh for those you don't know was a show that has come around three different times in the last 30 years. And and it was never as good as it was originally. Bobby Van was the host. He had been a singer and a really nice guy. And um, I was just watching it. There's a clip of Gary Shandling on it in the, uh, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling that Judd made. Um, and Gary was on Make Me Laugh. I'd been on Make Me Laugh three separate weeks uh, so it was five days of show. So I did 15 days of make me laugh. I could have shot Benjamin, my movie, in that <laughs> amount of time. And Bruce Baum, Bruce Baby Man Baum. Of course. And he would, uh, look, yeah, he even got a cookie. You know, <laughs> and he would dip, pour milk all over himself yeah. and dip the cookie in milk. And and he was a friend, and, and he, he is still. And he would, uh, he talked to the talent coordinator and um, she put me on Make Me Laugh. They saw me at the comedy store and they booked me for three weeks on there. And that was the thing that started. I'd go to Cleveland, I'd go to Pittsburgh, I'd go to Detroit and uh, that show was the reason. I, you know, People loved the young comedians that were coming up. Your first real stand-up appearance on television. That was Norm Crosby's comedy shop and he would just have everybody on and so it was one after another and he was the host and he was wonderful it was norm crosby legendary wonderful comedian bernie brillstein's first client norm yeah, bernie brillstein the greatest manager of all time was also him. your manager with brad uh, when they got together yep i love bernie very very much very much and bernie um his first client was norm crosby and his second was jim henson and That's right. uh he produced Hee Haw. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Bernie Brillstein told me at a breakfast about a year before he died, I asked him who he represented that were geniuses. And he said, I've only represented one genius. And I said, Lauren? No. Gilda? No. I said, well, who, who is Belushi? Or no. Jim Henson. Right. It just occurred to me where you first heard, don't spend your own money on anything. Bernie always said that. Incredible. Bernie said, never spend your own money. And Bernie got divorced like four times. And <laughs> Bernie gambled his money away like four times. He went, I went broke. I, you know, I got it all back. He inspired me because his first book, he was explaining how he was $3 million in debt to the IRS in this book. And he's still operating his company and nobody knows. Yeah. Clients don't know he's three million in debt and he's just still going because he knows that he's gonna make it and it doesn't matter what the adversity right. is. So tell me the first thing that happened in your career where you went out, you know, like you walked through a casino or a mall and it's like, oh my God, I can't get out of this place. People are stopping me left and right. What was the thing that really- Not for shoplifting, right? Not for shoplifting. The thing that um, really, really, changed your life forever that's a hard one i can't remember any specific thing when when i when i raised 
in the zeitgeist was when America's Funniest Home Videos was number one and Full House was like number four or number seven at the same time. So I had two shows on TV. All comedians would come up and go, give me one of your shows, Saget, you know. Which no one was allowed to have two shows. I don't well, even know how you put it. people did it. Nancy Walker did it. You know, there Nancy couple... Walker was an actress. <laughs> I think it's when those shows... I'll tell you when, when it was in the in the biggest scale that meant the most. Um, I'd been asked to go to... Um, I'm trying to remember where we were. Minneapolis, I believe. And um, uh, the Shriver family had asked me to come there for the Special Olympics. And it was televised on ABC. And I had just started Full House. And I don't think the video show had come on yet. And it was just one season of Full House. So I wasn't getting recognized as a stand-up once in a while from different appearances on shows. But um, this was the most meaningful because a lot of the special challenged adults uh, were fans of Full House and a lot of the kids as well. So I was, um, and it was a lot of it was being filmed. It was really interesting, but they put you in situations where you were surrounded by fans, but it was organic. It was people going, I love you. I love that show. You know, you're the dad, you're the dad on that show. You're the dad. So I think that's the first time that I, I felt it on a large scale and I was the most honored because as you know, uh, people that are mentally challenged um, are often the best people that exist on this planet. There's nothing but love coming out of them. So I was getting nothing but love. Um, and <laughs> then that turned around about for the next 20 years. I had a story in my book, Dirty Daddy, about um, meeting Edward James almost at the inauguration for Gray Davis, who got impeached, who was for a minute the governor of California. That's what he was, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this is like very interesting. And Edward James almost said to me, and if you don't remember, he's from Miami Vice. He's a really good actor. I mean, he's a fascinating man. Um, and he said, it takes 10 years to get a career started. And then it takes 10 years to get that job. And then it takes 10 years to do that job. And then when that job goes away, it takes 10 years that you fall out of favor. And then it takes 10 years for people to want you back. And then I realized <laughs> that Edward James almost was 120 years old because <laughs> the math just doesn't add up. I mean, basically he's telling me it's going to take me 70 years to get into some place where I'm comfortable. But I think he might be right. Maybe at 70 I'll be the most comfortable. But one of the things that I always respected about you is that you went through this time, I believe it was 11 years, where things were not going the way you wanted them to go. Right. And... The manager-client relationship is a very difficult one, but you always stayed, even when people in the company, it could be argued, were moving forward. Hey, that's my friend. He's doing this. And then you're one year, three years, five years, seven years, yet you 
still well, kept the relationship working. strong. I was always making a living. Like when the video show ended, I directed for four years. That's what I wanted to do. I'd been on camera so much, I was self-loathing. I wasn't myself on the shows. I didn't understand how great it was to have two top ten shows, to have family-oriented shows. Um, you really didn't understand. I didn't understand. I knew what it was to make a lot of money and to do shows that a lot of people loved. But then I would think to myself, but I don't feel funny. I don't feel like I'm being funny. But there was, it, I was stupid because knowing what I know now, I would know how to host a blooper show now, you know. But when I was hosting America's Funniest Home Videos, I had to feed the beast and you couldn't say anything, you know. And no one gets an Emmy nomination for hosting those amazing animals, you know. Um, but now they do. <laughs> now, now, now there is a category for reality <laughs> show host or whatever. But I, I, I did appreciate it. So it's not like I wasn't appreciative. It's just that I wanted to be funnier. But I stayed with my first manager, Brad Gray. And then... The late um, Brad Gray. Yeah, we lost him last year, which was uh, really tragic. I'm very close with his family. His, his kids are my kids. His daughter's my goddaughter. Uh, my children and his children grew up together. We vacationed together. Um, we both got kind of divorced together from the same woman too. We were very close, <laughs> but, but what happened was, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad when you lose your friends young and he, he and he was 59 and, um, but I stayed with the company. I had uh, Ray Rio. Then Ray Rio left the business and, and you Rio still stayed with the company. We're still friends. We stay in touch. And Michael Price, who went off on his own and he's incredibly successful with wonderful clients like uh, BJ Novak and Danny Chun. And, but I stayed still with, with Brostein Entertainment Partners, which was Brostein Gray at one time for a long time. Even when one of your best friends, Gary Shandling, sued Brad Gray, you still stayed. I did, and that was um, that was because I loved uh, Brad and I loved Gary, and it was uh, it's in the, it's in the documentary. It's very painful for me. Um, it was, it's very hard for me. It's one of the albatrosses in my life. Um, so what's interesting is when Gary sued Brad, um, I was I had just gotten my divorce papers served to me. So I was going through a divorce while, in effect, they were going through a divorce. And um, I just wanted to communicate with Gary, and I tried. And there was a lot of shit going on that I didn't know about. And then some stuff that I did know about, and there's many different viewpoints on it. And there's, there's negatives, and nothing, nothing good came out of it except pain uh, for everybody. Um, and it was uh, really unfortunate, and I wish life was different. But I stayed friends with Brad until the moment he passed away. Um, and and I got to have some reconciliation with Gary as well over the years. I would see Gary. There was one time I ran into him, and I, I don't think I talked about this in the, the Judd Apatow documentary about Gary. It really is. It's it's beautiful. I mean, he made a beautiful homage to the guy. He really did. And Gary did have an incredible comedic mind, obviously, incredibly funny, but complicated and, and, and hurt just like all of us. And I was hurt, and he was hurt by me, and I was hurt by him, 
and um, and I'd been hurt by him years before the lawsuit. Um, we have long friendships, 15 years of friendship. There's going to be hurt. Um, and comedians, you know, there's going to be falling in and out. But there was um, just one point I just went up to him and said, I've got, I want to come over to your house. He said, well, why? I said, because I have love for you. I, I, and he said, I understand that. And then he got teared up and I got teared up. And it's like, we still loved each other. Um, and I'll always love him. And I'll always love Brad. I mean, Brad, for me, was, did more for my family uh, and, and as a friend. And, um, but th my relationship with Brad was completely different than Gary's relationship with Brad. And um, it's just, you know, it's all over now. That's all past now. And what what Judd just did was commemorate and tribute to Gary, and and I have a, a a love in my heart, and I have a lot of love in my heart for Brad and his kids. I mean, his kids. That's you know, he's got four kids, so they're 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 my kids, you know. Um, but that's that's showbiz stuff. But it becomes you know public when people ask because. I mean, there's an HBO documentary on right now, <laughs> you know, so it's showbiz, be personal people's lives become other people's entertainment. Hey, everybody. As you know, you've heard me speak on this podcast of the importance of clean drinking water, but just if not more important is breathing clean air. The air inside our homes can be up to 100 times more polluted than the air outside. It's a fact. Dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses circulate throughout your home as we speak. Plus, out gases from your furniture, walls, floors, not to mention ozone, radon, and other chemical contaminants. It's potentially toxic soup in your home, and no ordinary air purifier costing less than $1,000 or more can get rid of all those indoor pollutants until now. And that's why I'm so excited about the Air Doctor. It removes all of these contaminants and more. This product normally retails for $600. That's right. Look on Amazon. You'll see it's $600. But for you listening today, you're going to get $300 off and be able to take it home for $299 plus shipping. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and enter the promo code Barry at checkout. You save $300, and it's one of the smartest and most affordable ways to protect the health of your kids, yourselves, and your family. Airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names of some people. I just want you to tell me what comes to your mind because you know everybody and you've met everybody. And I'm sure there's a tidbit or a word or a sentence or a little story that might be inspirational along the way. Okay. Greg Giraldo. I loved Greg Giraldo. Um, the only person on my Comedy Central roast that I was afraid of Um he starts the thing. I did not understand what roasting was, really. I didn't know that I was going to be, my feelings were going to be hurt, <laughs> that I was actually going to have Meanwhile, my Meanwhile, it was the highest rated television program that night, except for the Olympics. Yes, it was, it, it, was a, it was a big deal, and it was a really fun roast. And I had friends, which is not the case of a lot of roasts. I had John Stamos, who was the roast master, and I mean, literally, Norm MacDonald, uh, Jeff Ross, all, all my buddies were, were doing it. 
except Lovitz. Just kidding. But um, <laughs> Greg Giraldo, I did not know yet. And he came out, and I knew how, what a killer he was and how great he was at this. And he said uh, a comment about me. He said, you look like the Vlasic pickle stork <laughs> with that beaky little nose and those granny glasses. And I, my feelings got hurt. Um, and then right after he was done, the stage manager came over, and uh, he was told by uh, uh, by the producer. Joel Gallon. Joel Gallon. Uh, Tell Bob to look like he's having fun. But they didn't know it. It came over the PA system. <laughs> so the whole audience heard it. Um, so I started to look like I was having more fun. But I became friendly with Greg after that, and we were going to hang out, and then... Uh, it's just real sad that we've lost him. He was the sweetest and funniest shit guy, and he he had a hell of a career ahead of him. Um, and I just feel bad for his family that he's gone. Ellen DeGeneres. Ellen DeGeneres, I met when she was 19, and she was opening for me at Clyde's Comedy Corner in New Orleans. And there was nobody in the audience Nobody knew who I was. Ellen was opening. We worked, I think, two weeks together. I really liked her. We got along really well. I thought she had a crush on me. Uh, and then we went to go see the Flying Chippewandas, who were the Neville brothers. And she took me to go see them. And then all of a sudden, she had like a girlfriend with her. And I didn't know. I still thought she liked me and just wanted me to meet her girlfriend. So I never really figured any of that out. But I, I, I think I had a crush on her that week. I was very, I was single. My girlfriend at the time had decided to have another boyfriend for a while. And then we got married years later. This story gets more boring. But what happened was in New Orleans, uh, we were in the window. Because it was like you would always have to look in the window and see if there's anybody playing. So if no one was in the house... No one except waitresses. We had to be on stage. So Ellen would do a 20-minute set. I would do an hour set for nobody, just the club owner. It was uh, it was pretty upsetting. Entourage. Entourage was a fun show to go play on. And Doug Allen, I had known for years. He had seen my stand-up. The creator years. and showrunner. He just knew this diabolical voice of mine and decided to write it as the uh, the devil side of of my being and um i didn't think i was like that character you know until it was pointed out to me by any woman i ever dated john stamos john stamos is my brother um he is our relationship is very deep and um we're truly brothers probably as much as brothers bl related by blood um, I had no brother. I had two sisters. He has two sisters. Um, we're having dinner tomorrow night. We text each other, you know, I'm about to go on stage and play Kokomo, you know, <laughs> and I'm about to go on stage and, and I don't know, I got some new jokes about you, but we, we, uh, we're very lucky to have each other in each other's lives. We've been there for each other a lot. Sarah Silverman. I love Sarah Silverman so much. She... She's one of my favorite uh, comedians on the earth because she's able to get out across some of the most poignant things in the world done with the most love and the most sincerity, and that makes it all the more funny. We did a gig once um, where we played, I think it was uh, University of Boston, I'm not 100% sure, and um, 
we worked together. She went on, then I went on, and then we went back to the hotel. And I had a girlfriend at the time who I don't think was happy that Sarah and I were <laughs> gloating over each other, how amazing I thought she was. And she was telling me, no, New York, you're amazing. And she's just adorable and, and, a, and a, a treasure. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. It's been very complicated. Um, you know, he's admitted he's made a lot of mistakes, and 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 um, it's not something I'm capable of doing unless someone paid me, and it was done in IMAX. <laughs> um, an incredibly brilliant comedian. Everything everybody knows. There's nothing I could say that people wouldn't know, and. I'm hoping, and and I think it'll be interesting to see what he's learned and and how he grows and hopefully helps people and himself through what he's done. Because um, people, everyone has a right to be forgiven. Um, everyone also has a right to not be abused. So there's a, a double-edged thing, but he's a very, as far as comedy goes, um, he's he, he's an icon. And so um, I've always liked him. I, I, I didn't know about this stuff. And I always thought he was hilarious. And then things happened that, change people's opinions and and we'll see what time will do I, he's he's a he's a smart man uh, obviously so we'll we'll see what happens i i do i feel bad for everybody i feel bad for someone that has made mistakes and been sick enough to make those mistakes and i feel bad for the people that were abused that that have been um, treated in a bad manner and in a disrespectful and, and upsetting manner. Um, I also, I'd like to see things work out. Richard Pryor. Well, Richard Pryor was one of the biggest influences in my life. So I am very fortunate to have gotten to know him. Um, I was at the comedy store a lot. And I was hosting a bunch in the main room and stuff, and I'd bring Richard out. And one night, uh, I got bumped uh, because R Richard's coming in. You can't go on. So Richard went on, and then he sees me backstage. He goes, are you going on? And I went, no, no, uh, they're going to bring you up. And then he re realized right away, realized that I was getting bumped because of him. And he said, when I'm done, do you want to come out and see my testarossa? And I didn't know what a testarossa was, you know. I had a dollar, and he and the show's over, and he he, he does this crazy bring down the house, you know, twenty minutes, and then he maybe thirty five. He, he I don't think he did twenty minutes ever, and he and he took me outside. He showed me the car and how the doors open. He says, "You want to get in?" I said, "No, I'm okay." He said, "It's a quarter of a million dollars. I don't know what the fuck it does." <laughs> and then. Um, I was fortunate enough to get in a movie. I got cast in a movie called Critical Condition, and uh, I spent three weeks with him. Did he have something to do with you getting cast? No. 
It was uh, Michael Apt had the director and a friend of mine, Margie Simkin, the casting director. She's my friend now, but she wasn't then. And she actually cast a movie I made called For Hope that I directed about uh, a character Dana Delaney played based on my sister with scleroderma. And so Margie is a big part of my life. And, and, um, or Marjorie, some people call her. But Michael Apt had directed Coal Miner's Daughter, and he cast me. And so all of a sudden, I was with Joe Montaigne and Rachel Ticketon and Randall Tex Cobb and Ruben Blades and Blades and a lot of great actors. And in High Point, North Carolina, the furniture capital of the world. So did Richard know you were cast? I showed up, like- and he was like, he was happy. He was happy that it was me. And then we started to go to dinner and have some laughs and... One night, I, he didn't. I didn't think he felt good that day, so we uh, we didn't um, invite him to dinner, and he was mad. He was hurt the next day, and then I realized, oh, he wants you're his friend. You know, uh, you're friends with Richard Pryor. And then I always invited him, and then he stopped coming anyway. <laughs> but we were like we would film scenes, and we couldn't look at each other. We were laughing so hard. And it was serious stuff. It was like a drowned victim coming in from, the, from you know, from outside the pier or the hospital that was kind of like Ellis Island with a hospital on it. And he was, uh, he was, he was just special, really, really special. I mean, it goes without saying. But and I and I got to know him, and and I'll always have that treasure. Your proudest moment in show business. One time I was 23, I was playing Carnegie Hall opening for Gino Vanelli. <laughs> he went, I just want to stop. And then he did. But um, <laughs> I guess my proudest moment, it happened recently. Because it, it, it regroups over the years. My proudest moment, I think, is has been at my Scleroderma Research Foundation benefits when my kids are there and I'm and we've raised a lot of money and or I'll say I'll go through one of my little sentimental riffs about my sister or just the people affected it affects mostly women in the prime of their lives and um and I go back to my table and my daughters just hug me and say you were wonderful dad and my youngest daughter um, is 25, and I had just sent her a copy of my special, the new one, uh, and and she called me on a Saturday morning and said, Dad, I just have to tell you, I loved your special so much. I'm so proud of you. And, you know, there's nothing more you can ask for in life than having your kid proud of you and then when you figure the content of the special it meant that the message of the special outweighed whatever picayune look you want to pick apart with the content because the special i mean the last thing in the special is i sing a song we've got to be kind to each other so i was trying to envelop it with love of my audience of people and i was on fallon last week and he He said in your special, he said, there's a moment at the end where someone goes, we need you, Bob. And I said, "Uh, well, if you need me, I'll be there for you. 
who's kind of like a comedian who thinks he's Batman <laughs> for doing R-rated dick jokes. But to me, when an audience feels that way, when they give you that kind of affection, when you give them solace, when they know you, when they feel like they know you, but hell, you're talking to them like you're doing one-on-one. -on -one. It's like I'm talking to you right now, but you're talking to a couple thousand people or a couple hundred people or whatever it is. But, it, you know, that that kind of uh, affection from an audience, is, as long as it doesn't fall into the creepster dumpster, is all you can ask for as a, as a person that puts themselves out there to entertain them. When I used to hear stars like, you know, Liza Minnelli, oh, my fans, I love my fans. I totally, I mean, I saw Bruce Springsteen's one-man show on Broadway. And it's life-changing because here you are watching a master do what he does, which couldn't be more organic and couldn't be more coming from a place of who he is. And then I can't do any spoiler alerts because maybe he'll put some of it in his show when he tours again with the with the full band. But it's it's amazing the things he unveils. They're in his book, things that he admits. And... That's intimacy with a performer that you're their other. You're, the audience is their other person. It's their relationship. Yes, he's got his wife. Yes, I have my fiance. He's gonna be my wife. You know, that's your that's your other. That's life. But there's something that happens of me pulling a mic out of a stand for 43 years, and and getting to talk to people or put a movie up on a screen that. You know, it's your baby. It's that's different. Stand up's not your baby. Stand up is you. A movie is your baby. You made a baby with people, and they could be producers that are your best friends, people that you don't really talk to ever again, but you made a baby together. And here's this thing that will live because unless the you know unless all uh, databases are wiped out. But um, I'm just proud to do what I do, and I, I feel I do feel like I haven't. I'm just starting to get to do what I want on my, my own terms. I'm just starting now, which took a long time. I think it was like 20 years longer than a lot of guys. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. In show business, there are a couple of jobs I wanted that I didn't get. You know, they, they come and go. It's when um, you, I wrote a pilot last year with a really good producer writer and it wasn't bought. And I didn't understand why they didn't get it, because frankly, they didn't get it. But it's also, in retrospect, how it fueled me to move forward with what's happened in the past two years, the tenor of the world. It's a good thing it's not on the air, because it would have been canceled. They would have made me nine episodes, and that would, would have been gone, because the world changed. And it had more of an, I don't want to say entourage feel, but it was like entourage with a heart. You know, but it was about me um, being a doctor. And I, in retrospect, I'm glad. I mean, we would have just been scrambling to pull the misogyny out of it. But it was not ill-intended. It wasn't done to hurt anybody, but it was just who this character was, which is still valid. But that was a big disappointment because I was like, we wrote it. We spent a year on it. You know what that's like. You develop something. There's nothing that's gigantic, you know. When things get canceled, I'm like, oh, that got canceled. You know, I'm I'm a professional. 
Final question, what advice would you have for the young person growing up in a small town, moving around, all the death and all the tragedy and all the outcasts and high school and grade school and and how do you get to the point where you become a writer, a host, a stand-up, a comedy actor, a dramatic actor, a person who writes books, a person who makes his own movies, who does Broadway? What advice do you have for somebody to get to the kind of level and have the kind of career that you've had? Even if they wanted to be a doctor, even if they wanted to do something to better themselves, they have to work their ass off. They just have to... They have to somehow not want to be famous, but want to be really good, which is really, really hard. Find something that you love and do it as well as you can do it. So if you write stuff, you know, just take Louis Anderson stuff. Just take that. I'm just saying steal it. I'm telling the young (laughs) people listening, steal Louis Anderson's stuff. Just do his stuff and use that and go on TV doing Louis Anderson's material. And you will be the talk of the internet. Uh, no, I would recommend, you know, talk your voice. Uh, guys, girls, aardvarks listening, anybody that wants to move forward. If you want to be a stand-up, you know, come up with original stuff that you think it sets you apart. It could be about your life. It could be about... The world it could be it could be a, a, a damn hacky guitar act, but just you won't open for me if that's what you're doing. But <laughs> but you know, just it's it's a special thing to be able to be in the arts, and that's how I look at it. It's not being a comic, not being an oh he's an actor, you know. Don't don't listen to him. It's just learning your craft, learn it, and just do it all the time. Just if you're gonna be a stand-up, just don't ever not do it. Um, but then again, uh, in order to be good at it, you have to take time off in order to live life and experience life so that you can then come out again. That's why Dave Chappelle disappears for eight years. It doesn't disappear. He's been doing shows. He was in Ohio doing shows all the time. He would go to New York. He just didn't know it. Um, I went under the radar when I was trying to figure out if I'm going to do stand-up ever again. And then I ended up doing another special. But just figure out what you want to write and just start writing it down. And if you're not a writer, perform it. And if you're not a a stand-up type of person and you have a facility for acting, study and read as much as you possibly can. Or if you're a musician, just do what you're supposed to do. But everybody always, you know, you watch the Oscars and half of it is, is you know, I would I, liberal rhetoric, which I'm part of. And, you know, I don't, it, it can get old if everybody does the same speech. But it's always been consistent, the 50 years of watching Oscars or what is it, 140 years now of Oscars? And the person looks into the camera and says, that little kid sitting at home, you know, you're in a cornfield, you're in your own poop, you know, you just ate your brother because you're a cannibalistic family. You can make it. You can get off that sofa that your parents have duct taped you to and you can you can go out and you could be standing here one day. Um the whole thing's not about winning awards. The whole thing is about doing work 
that affects people. And it's not just for you. It's, you're doing it for other people. You're giving something to people. You're giving something to others. And that's, that's what I think a lot of people make it all about themselves. And that, that's what gets old. That's what gets old with, you know, Instagram and all the narcissistic stuff that I'm part of. Can't help it because I just adore thinking about myself. <laughs> but but doing it for other people and entertaining other people is uh, is a pretty wonderful thing. Not just going out there going, I'm going to get rich, which is, it's nice to have money, but um, that stuff comes if you, do, you put in your time and you do everything with as much nobility as you can in this crazy, whacked out world. Thank you so much, Bob. You this, gave me a sandwich and parking. This was amazing. You this were was incredible the best thing today. that's ever happened. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Mark Conforti, March 17th, 2018. It reads, keep them coming, five stars. And the comment reads, Barry does a fantastic job with these interviews. Keep them coming. Love the response to, quote, what's your greatest failure and how did you use that to fuel yourself going to the next level, unquote. Thank you, Barry. Mark, thank you so much. Congratulations. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code BARRY, and get $100 off and get the best-tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. you love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, ikilledjfk.com. And the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air. And you can save $300 right now. Go to airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry, and start breathing in clean and healthy air today. And lastly, thanks to our partners at Wondery. They are amazing. They asked me if I could request that you take a little bit of your time and do a short, short survey. Just go to wondery.com survey. It only takes a few minutes of your time. You can do it straight from your smartphone, and it would really help us out at the show and at Wondery. That's wondery.com survey. It just takes a couple of minutes. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drive that fancy car. 
All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.